Hello and welcome to the July episode of Jazz Talk Seattle. And my name is Max. I'm here with Josh Howe and our special guest, Brian Kirk. Hello. Brian is a fantastic drummer, uh, percussionist as well, educator, and he has a long list of musicians that he has uh, played with and gotten to know. Some of whom are, you know, including Gladys Knight, Joe Henderson, Bobby Hutcherson, and the list goes on from there. Um, we'll get into that in a little bit. Okay. But yeah, welcome, Brian. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Yeah. It's glad to be here. Excellent. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So we're going to talk about a bunch of stuff, but mainly we just want to kind of give you a, a hello to everybody who might not know who you are. And I think they should, uh, especially around Seattle. Yeah, I appreciate that. And that was very kind, very uh, nice words you said for us in the intro. So, yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, can we just – let's start from the beginning if that's okay. Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, so, be, be, go ahead. Oh, yeah, no. Well, I mean, I know that I know that you have quite a family history uh, related to jazz, especially with your father. Right. Um, who, he was a jazz drummer, correct? Yes, that's correct. Yep. And uh, you guys, you guys grew up in Indianapolis. So not, yeah, no? so I, I was born in Indianapolis, Indiana. Yeah, and my dad was a um, the original member of the Master Sounds, which is Wes Montgomery, Buddy Gump Montgomery, and uh, Monk Montgomery. And so they actually had a group called the Master Sounds. My dad actually lived across the street from Wes Montgomery's grandmother. So that whole oh, wow. was. <laughs> Okay, we're we're in Indianapolis and we just like to play music and that's it. Nobody cared because we weren't in New York, right? Mm, huh. it, wasn't, it wasn't Chicago, it wasn't New York, so they just love to play. And Indianapolis is one of these kind of places where it's very creative and low key in terms of um, uh, publicity at that time, especially. So you had JJ Johnson, you had. Um, uh, my dad, you had Freddie Hubbard, you had James Spalding, uh, you had um, so many different big bands um, and, and musicians out of Indianapolis essentially just got together at the drop of a hat and played. But most of them also were music teachers. So my dad taught music in the schools after traveling for quite a while and really going through the kind of situation where, you know, he kind of felt that being a professional musician wasn't going to really pay the bills and it mm -hmm. was dangerous. My dad traveled with big Maybell and they were accosted by uh, white cops in the South. I mean, he was, he was part of those Negro territory bands where literally he was pulled over and big Maybell at the hotel was, was told to give up the money because they knew they, that the big Maybell carried the money in her bra so um, she had it in her bra. She actually had a Derringer in her bra pistol as well. And so they found a pistol. So, so dad, when, I mean, apparently it was really a bad scene where he was going to, the cop was going to, you know, he called him a bunch of racial slurs. He was going to run them all in. And that was kind of an eye opener for him at the point where he said, you know what, this is may not be totally what I want to do. Go on the road and be famous. And so when he was with Wes, uh, Wes started to get really rec recognized as um, uh, a, a guitarist of note, especially when Cannonball came through and said, 
Riverside, you've got to sign this this guy, Wes Montgomery, because he's amazing. You, you never heard anything like it. And mm. so when Wes got signed in Riverside, Wes, dad, uh, Wes asked my dad if he wanted to go to New York, and my dad turned him down. And wow. one, of the, one of the reasons why was my mother said, if, if you go to New York with Wes Montgomery, we're through as a couple. Holy cow. So, so that, that New York-centric thing, was a that was a thing even back then? Yes. Wow, I didn't know that. 30s, 40s, 50s. Oh, yeah. I mean, you always hear about New York being kind of a the jazz capital of sorts, if not New Orleans. But yeah, I didn't was, realize that went back that far. Yeah, and it was an industry there. I mean, you know, you're, mm-hmm. you're talking about publications and recordings that were actually done in New York City. You know, I mean, yeah. if, if you know, if you wanted to make it, you need to go there and actually um, work with all the people that were mainly in the industry. So it's um, also really interesting to hear that you didn't want to go on the road because of the right. Well, he had a lot of experience. I mean, he was on the road a lot. Right. That's, that was the deal. I mean, he was out with Big Maybell. I mean, I can tell you stories, man. That we go back <laughs> to Hampton, the Hampton band, which is which is Slide Hampton's family. You know, the, Ham, the the Hamptons family's band. They were on the road a lot, and it was a lot of turmoil. There's a lot of racism, man. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're talking about you're dealing with the '40s and '50s with all Negro bands on the road, right? In the South, in Oklahoma Territory, and that was really where it was bad in Oklahoma Territory because, man, you they'd be stopped they'd be stopped at the drop of a hat and searched or or you know told you know pull over we're taking you all to jail. Goodness for being black. Oh. In a in a traveling on the road, yeah, it was it was it was intense for him. So he made a decision. He went back to Butler University, and that was intense as well. But he got through it. He got his degree um, teaching, and he raised a family. Man, check this out. He raised a family, working five days a week, teaching school starting at seven a.m. and working six nights a week on Indiana Avenue. Wow. Dang. <laughs> so my mom said he got to a point where it was like, uh, no, that's your gig suit. You need to put on your day suit. Cause he got he was tired. He was confused. Right? He he was sleep he said he didn't know how he did it, but he, he was driven. So he slept about four and a half, maybe five hours a night and, and got up the next day. Just like Wes Montgomery actually did when he worked at the post office and was trying to feed his family playing late night gigs. So it no was uh, Indianapolis was an interesting. I mean, it still is. I mean, some great musicians there still, but Indianapolis is like one of these places, man. It was like a it was an incubator of talent and skills, like and a lot of cats had a lot of fire and energy. They just wanted to play, but then they had day gigs too. You know, Pookie Johnson was a great tenor player, but he worked at the post office. You know, he worked all day, went home, take a couple. You know had a little shower, had something to eat, and went out and played music for four hours, right? And, wow. and a lot of those cats did that. Uh, I can just, you know, I can name a lot of them that did that. So it sounds like you have had quite a history of, uh, your your dad has quite a hit, had a history of playing with these amazing musicians, right. and your dad being an amazing musician as well. How did that impact your start in music? Were you interacting with all these folks too? Uh, I was young, so we we moved from night from uh, Indianapolis in 1968. We moved to San Francisco. I, I turned 10 in 68, mm. but as a young kid, I mean, you know, Dad would take me over, and I would be sitting under the piano and under Buddy while Buddy Montgomery was playing piano, 
And, you know, they would jam all the time because, you know, it was just guys in the neighborhood, right? West, nobody yeah. knew Wes. Nobody would teach him because they wouldn't give me lessons because he was black. So the, the white uh, guitar players in town said, I'm not going to teach you anything using a racial mm. swear or a uh, slur. And said, I'm not going to teach you anything. So what did Wes do? He just, he learned 17 Charlie Christian solos from a record at age seven, at age 17. That's so amazing. He just said, okay, look, I'll just learn by ear. So, and then, you know, Wes's mom, I mean, Wes's wife said, you know, you're keeping up the kids at night. We got to take them to school. You keep us all up. So he put the pick away and started playing with his thumb. The rest is history. Wow. Holy cow. Yeah. So, so that was uh, the integrate, you know, that was my, my first exposure. And then when I moved to San Francisco, dad still kept the same thing where he did Oakland public schools during the day. And he works six nights a week playing music. And I started getting into playing music in elementary school where I started mm. playing drums. Cause I, I had always had the talent and dad, I wasn't serious enough for my dad. You know, <laughs> he really wanted to teach me, but at five and six, I wasn't serious enough. And less, and at eight, he forced me to take piano lessons for like two years. Mm. So mm -hmm. I took piano lessons for two years and that's, I didn't really like it because I wanted to be out with the rest of the guys playing basketball and baseball and football and you're just hanging out. Right. So I didn't right. practice and I didn't really. And then my teacher who was a good friend of my dad, she taught in the Indianapolis public schools during the day and she moonlighted as piano teacher at night. And so she was tired. So, you know, she actually was sometimes she would fall asleep while I was, <laughs> while, <laughs> while I was practicing doing my lessons at, at night, you know, and she was like, you know, in early evening, right? Because she had worked all day teaching school. So it was, it was, um, I mean, she was a nice lady, which, but it didn't hold my interest. And then and later This was on, in San Francisco already, or was this still in Indianapolis? And when I got to San Francisco, I really started getting into the drums in elementary school after playing in a talent show with a, a local kid that I met. That bef that actually became my friend because it was it was very tough going from Indianapolis all black school all black neighborhood interaction with mostly black people to San Francisco where I didn't have any black people in my school. Wow, that's quite a shift. Yeah, so Whoa. I I met a guy that we fell in love with music together and we did a talent show and after that I just really started getting into playing drums. You know, when did you start playing with your own gigs? Uh, I think, well, that was, that was kind of it. You know, we, our first, our first talent show was our gig. We did some Beatles tunes. We did some blues. Right. Uh, cool. So I was like, uh, it was like sixth grade, something like that. And wow. that was the first gig. And then I started really, so here's what I did. Actually, when I got into, uh, after junior, junior high school, I kind of played more basketball than anything else. So I was really into sports. But I always had my hand and, and, and ear in playing drums because I would sit down. I mean, you can imagine this. At, at our house, Benny Barth would come over and say, hey, Kurt, I just want to go down and play drums. And he would go down and play drums for an hour and a half down mm -hmm. in, the, in the garage. So the, the drums were always coming through the house. You know what I'm saying? And you just kind of grew up hearing drums all the time. And then dad played piano. So dad's played piano in the house. He composed, he plays a really good piano. 
So then I started really getting serious about jazz. And he said, hey, come down here. I want you to play with me. I was like, whoa, are you serious? Because I was playing funk, R&B, soul. He said, mm. okay, I want you to play time with me. He was he was learning how to get his, keeping his chops together because he did that in Indianapolis where he played piano for all of his drum students, right? Sure. So, um, yeah, I grew up with all of this music happening. As a matter of fact, you guys know about Joe Henderson? Of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's my neighbor. <laughs> Joe Henderson, yeah, no. when he quit the um, – he, he, he took the front money and he quit Blood, Sweat, and Tears and moved to our neighborhood in 1972. Wow. Wow. He bought a 12-room mansion. Oh, that's not too shabby. No, no, it's a 12-room house, basically you wouldn't consider it a mas- mansion back then, but it it's uh, it's considered one now. Wow. So, you know, he told me, I asked him, I said, man, you know, because I've, I've been knowing Joe since I was 13 when I, when I moved up there and on Mount Davidson. And I said, Joe, why did you, you know, why did you leave, you know, blood, sweat and tears? I was 16, 15, something like that. And uh, he said, I didn't like that music, man. I'm a jazz musician. I just wanted the money. (laughs) It seems like there were a lot of horn players back then who did stuff like that. Yeah. 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 Well, I don't know. Maybe they liked it too, but like Wayne Shorter, like played with uh, a lot of people, Steely Dan and stuff. And okay. Other horn players would do stuff like that too. Well, Joe's cool. He said in Detroit, he walked, he walked a bar and played a lot of blues clubs. And he learned, okay. how, he learned how to like, uh, please the crowd by, by laying on one note and using rhythm. Mm. And that's how he kind of, you can tell his style is really kind of centered in, in, in a certain pitch area, right? Yeah. And it's repetition of, of his licks, you know, um, He'll actually, when he practice, I mean, I used to listen to Joe Henderson practice, oh, 10 years, man, every every not, every time he was in town. I mean, he would go on the road a lot. I got some stories about about him going on the road a couple of times. And I was his paper boy for a little while, too. And then he got he got tired of the chronicle. No way. Yeah, I do <laughs> to him and Willie Mays. And San Francisco was a unique place when I was growing up, man. And I Holy lived cow. very fortunate, and I lived in a um, – upper middle class area because dad worked during the day and played at night. He was mm. a, he worked at a college. So anyway, um, Joe, Joe was really um, influential in terms of what I listened to him play. I listened to him practice scales and patterns over and all night long. Matter of fact, I, I always do a clinic with my jazz, my, uh, when I do clinics with the high school jazz bands, I always say, guys, yeah. you guys play long tones. And they go, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, how long? And they said, oh, you know, five five minutes maybe. I said, you ever thought about playing long tones for one hour? Wow. And they went, no. I said, well, my neighbor, Joe Henderson, would practice long tones for one hour. Mm. Me, no, it was just, me, he literally was focusing in on his sound. Every single note from the bottom of the horn to the top of the horn and back. Wow. So that's why did, you hear Joe, you know it's Joe, right? Yeah. You know that's his sound. He focused in on really getting a sound, and then he played piano to literally get all of the stuff and transfer it to the saxophone. So what you're hearing on the saxophone is not Joe practicing a sax. It's him playing the piano and then transfer it to the sax. Hmm. hmm. Do you know why, why he – Went about it that way instead of just uh, playing the ideas directly on the saxophone. You said the piano was everything. 
Hmm. A lot of people start on the piano. Yeah. I mean, That's you, true. It sounds like you and your dad both have joined the lineage of amazing drummers who Thank were you. piano players first. Yeah, he was like both, you know? I mean, in, in, like I said, in Indianapolis, man, if you didn't play piano, you're kind of like out of luck because you, you, <laughs> you got to be able to write. First of all, you got to be able to play music by ear because a lot of those guys did not read. They weren't taught. Mm-hmm. They were self-taught. Yep. So they had to teach it from the piano, then they had to use their ears from there. I mean, Buddy, Wes, and Monk never read any music whatsoever. They couldn't read. They didn't know how. So... Basically, they, they sat around and they learned tunes. Buddy said, okay, here, play this chord, play this chord, play that chord. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. it was one of those kind of things. So anyway, yeah, I got a, I got a ton of Joe Henderson stories because I grew up next to the eccentric Joe Henderson. He was a funny cat, man. <laughs> you have a favorite recording of Joe? Yeah, Mode for Joe. The mode for Joe? Mm-hmm. And Joe said... Man, if I had known that record was gonna make such a splash, I would have like rec- I really taken my time and practiced. <laughs> I'm like Joe, what are you talking about? He said <laughs> I didn't practice for that record. Wow, was that with Cedar? Yeah. Cedar Walton, Cedar Bobby, Joel Chambers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he. Uh, he, yeah, he, I mean, he said, I had no idea that was going to make a, such a splash. And let me tell you what, the, what he meant by a splash. He said when he got the first the first royalty check for Mode for Joe, he called his manager and said, there must be some mistake. And the manager said, what are you talking about? He said, Joe said, there's too many zeros on this check. <laughs> Man, if only that happened with jazz records nowadays. I know. And then, and then, and then Joe and manager said, "No, Joe, that's that's your first royalty check from this record. No way. It, it, it has done well. That's what he said. That's wow. amazing. <clears throat> yes. So anyway, so with a neighbor like that playing uh, long tones and patterns and all night long, I imagine that must have affected uh, the way you approach your instrument and yeah, practice and all that. Yes." Uh, what kinds of did you uh, study with him ever explicitly, or was it just no? Because I was, and I was in rock it. and funk, and Joe mm. was into you know. He said, "You still playing that rock?" <laughs> 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 and I said, "Yeah, Joe, what are you talking about man I'm playing? For, yeah, yeah, well, you know, this is Ohio players. Come on, man, Mandrill. I mean, San Francisco, Sly Stone. I'm this is San Francisco, man. You know, I'm playing all of that. You know, um, absolutely. And so here's the story." One day I get a call from a guy named Barry Block who has a gig at Ray's. Um, where is it? It's called Ray's in North Beach. It's actually a little club. And Ray was a very cool guy, but he was eccentric in terms. It was a really small little joint. And he always had to sing. He had to put a straw hat on and do his little. Uh-oh. His, his, <laughs> his little stick. His little Jimmy Durante stick, right? Mm-hmm. He had to sing Jada, right? So Barry also played, he was a great saxophone player too. I guess he studied with Joe. He said, man, I got mm. a gig for you, um, but I can't, I got to tell you something. You, Joe Henderson's on the gig. I was like, oh, what? Are you kidding me? I was like, like what, 19, 20 years old maybe? And he said, he, I said, yeah, it's my neighbor. He said, yeah, I know. He told me. Um, 
but you can't tell anybody because he's not going to be playing saxophone. He's going to be playing the piano. Oh, wow. Whoa. And, and he's going under the name of Buckshot LaFonk. <laughs> which the alias that Cannonball used to get out of the royalties for the record that he was on. Wow. So Buckshot LaFonk was Joe Henderson with a Detroit uh, Tigers baseball hat on, sunglasses, playing the piano. Standards. We started out with Blue Bossa, you know, uh, and then we went into some other stuff, but it was all standards, um, you know, um, stuff like that. And uh, then, you know, Ray did his whole little Jada thing. But Ray, but Joe Henderson refused to, <laughs> refused to play Jada with the club owner. So he went outside and smoked a cigarette, and Barry came <laughs> on the piano and, and played the Jada, 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 Jing, 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 you know, that song. Oh, and, yeah. But anyway, that's my playing the play. I, pl I played with Joe Henderson, but he didn't play sax, play piano. Holy cow. That's so cool. Buckshot LaFunk. He said, man, you can't tell anybody, but his name was Buckshot LaFunk. So I didn't. I didn't invite anybody to gigs. I, I, I really wanted people to know. Place was packed. It was North Beach, and the time was a tourist tourist attraction. North Beach has always been that way. And so mm -hmm. the place was jammed, and people just saw this, you know, this guy playing piano with a hat on, sunglasses, shades. Could you see his eyes? And he played all the stuff you hear on the horn on the piano. Mm. Wow. I was like, wow. well, this is no wonder he sounds. I mean, this is what he's about. He transfers all that to the sax. And the long tones made sense because he really didn't have to figure out where they are on the horn. He knew where they were. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. So let's fast forward so, a little bit really yep. quick, if you don't mind. Um, and talking about your uh, playing and touring career. Um, so, again, I may be wrong, but it, I read somewhere that you played with Count Basie for a little while. Is that true? So, Count was, uh, when I moved to New York, I went to NYU. All those mm -hmm. guys were there, man. It was like, you go to NYU and you walk outside and then there's, oh, God, there's Steve Ture in the street. <laughs> uh, there, there's Charlie Persip on the street. Max Roach on the street. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's like that. It's like that. So um, I eventually, when I got out of, when I graduated from NYU with my master's in 1990, I got a call from Frank West because mm. basically had died. So I got a call from, no, 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 no. Sorry. I got a call from Grover Mitchell first. So Grover Mitchell was leading the Count Basie Orchestra, right? So mm -hmm. I, I rehearsed with them. And then they use, you know, they use all the drummers that I really knew the book. Because if you go in the Count Basie Orchestra, there's no book. I was like, you know, cause I, I could really read, right? By the time I got out of New York, when I got to New York and, and got out of NYU, if a fly jumped on the page, I could read it, right? <laughs> so, there's no book for the Basie band? No. Holy cow. No. It's chicken like, scratch. Those even guys, the horns. They had lead horn parts, and some of them were barely there. They said, "Well, you know, Cal, you know, uh, um, you know, uh, straight basic straight ahead, right?" And I go, mm -hmm. "Oh yeah, yeah, I know the first part of it." He said, "Well, <laughs> I mean, you know, I don't know. I, I know the shout chorus now. I can see the whole thing, but that was the concept, man. There was no charts, and for the Ellington band, same thing. So yeah, I was oh. actually." I played with Grover Mitchell, and then when I did the uh, Count Basie Orchestra, uh, what they call it, Midnight, uh, was it Moonlight? I think it was a Midnight 
summer, yeah, Midnight Summer Madness led by Frank West. So it was everybody in the Basie band, including uh, Bill Ramsey. Uh, there wasn't a singer at the time, or maybe one singer, I'm not sure who it was. But everybody who was like a member of the Basie band when Basie was alive came out and did that Midsummer Night Madness thing. So, and we rehearsed many a times before that. So, yeah, I played with Basie without Basie. Wow. wow. Did you did you tour with that band too? No, I did not. Okay. Because I wondered, I sometime when I was in, I must have been in early high school, I saw uh, the Count Basie band uh, mm-hmm. out in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, where I was living at the time as a kid. Wow. wow. And I can't remember the name of the bass player, but um, I talked to him and because uh, the, the bio in the, the program said he was from Arkansas and I was born in Arkansas. So I went up and talked to him and he was so excited that we were both <laughs> born in the same place. And he just kept telling me, play in all 12 keys, I'll practice in all 12 keys, which I yeah. promptly proceeded to ignore for the next decade or so. Right. But finally, I'm coming around to taking his advice. There you go. Good job. So I... I just when we were uh, uh, when Max and I had saw uh, that you played with that band, we, I really wondered if maybe you were in Kuala Lumpur and I saw you p- play there, which would have been really cool. No, uh, I was in you know Basie passed in the what eighty two something like that eighty three, mm-hmm. and so I was in New York and I was there in eighty. I got there in eighty eight. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. So at some point. Uh, you left San Francisco and moved to New York to to study music. Is that correct? Yeah, I went to NYU. I wanted to get my okay. master's degree. I was like, I kind of figured that okay, like Dad, I, I was working all the best gigs in San Francisco and and Oakland. I was having a good time, but I was not. What really turned me on was I worked with Gladys Knight and I played mm-hmm. vibes, timpani, percussion, congas, all that kind of thing. And no way. Yeah, it was a it was a union gig, and I got out of when I got out of Cal State Hayward. Um, Literally, I could read anything on Vibes, Timpani, and and, and things. So I got hired by Fred Berry, who I spent seven years with at College of uh, San Mateo, reading big band charts in a, in a Monday night big man every Monday night with myself and Glenn Pearson. We would do that. And so Fred knew that we could handle the job. So I got there, and he called me and said, Gladys Knight's going to be here for the, for the weekend, and I want to hire you to play percussion, you know. And so I got on the Gladys Knight show and it was so intense, man. It was so tight. It was so musical. I mean, it was so like energetic. I was like, man, I got to go. We were talking, Glenn and I were talking about going to New York. I said, man, I got to get out of here because I got to play like this every night. I got to have a show like this every night. I mean, it was, it was like, um, yeah, it was nothing like I've ever been. You know, I've been playing gigs, but Gladys Knight and they had been playing for together for at least 10 years. That band was so tight. I mean, it was just like, oh, my goodness. And um, I handled it well. So I was like, okay, I'm ready for New York. So then I went to, you know, I actually started making plans. And I applied for NYU. And then um, I got in. Um, and then I, you know, went to school there for two years. Wow. Nice. Got my That's master's. legendary. So I got to ask. I want to back up. Way back a little bit, sure. Because uh, you mentioned that Joe Henderson would <laughs> talk to you about playing rock and funk and all that, and are you still playing that? When did you end up starting to play jazz, and and or have you been playing rock and funk and jazz like this whole time, like all of it? Or you said it the whole time, man. San Francisco, <laughs> San Francisco was amazing. 
I could go down and hear Santana. Matter of fact, I would go down to Mission District and hear Santana practicing. Oh, right? wow. Santana would be practicing on Mission Street. And one time, I remember the last time that he happened at his house, the police in the city said, you got to get a studio because we can't control the crowds while you guys are rehearsing. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> wow. Yes. So I would actually go down to Ingleside and listen to Sly Stone rehearse. Sly would rehearse at his mother's house in the garage. Wow. You understand what I'm saying? Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 We would listen. Oh, we all that, you know, thank you for letting me be mm-hmm. myself. Man, there'd be so many crowds, crowds out there in Ingleside because it was a mixed neighborhood. A lot of the white people were like really upset about it because it was like all oh, no. people standing around listening to this band. So Sly eventually had to leave his mother's house to not practice. But that whole thing of um, who was around when I was there? Tower was there. I was studying with Tower Power's drum teacher, Chuck Brown. Cold Blood was there. Malo, Quick Grits. These are all these funk bands that were like R&B soul bands that basically had horn players, man. And so that's what we heard in the streets in San Francisco all the time. Would those bands rehearse like every day or? Yes. Like, yeah. Yes. Yes. No wonder they were so tight. Yes. Tower was no joke. That band mm-hmm. was constant. They're yeah. still, still going. Yeah. yeah. That's incredible. 50 years. Well, yeah. I mean, we, so here's the, here's what really kind of happened. The amalgamation of all those styles. I mean, I would go down and hear the grateful. I mean, I could stand outside, um, go gay park and hear uh, Jefferson airplane rehearse. Right. Volunteers mm. of America. Volley. I mean, this is during the whole time of the turbulent late 60s, early 70s, man. Mid 70s. Mm. You know, I could hear all of that rock and roll. Plus, my dad was working six nights a week playing jazz. Wow. So then uh, he would come home and play. Re- you know, he always played great at records. So. But he would say, hey, man, I, you know, he'd tell my mother he, he'd be working at certain souls, you know, the Hungry Eye or the Hubba, or not the, not the Hubba, but Hungry Eye, or he'd be playing. Oh, he did the Playboy Club six nights a week, right? So yeah. so I, I listened to him, and then I go out and play funk, playing R&B, and then I got into a, a rock band and a funk band in, the, uh, high, in high school. And we started working fraternities, man. We had gigs. I mean, you know, <laughs> we were copy band. We we did all the Ohio players. We did all Mandrill tunes. We did cool. Oh, we did cool in the gang. Everybody had to do cool in the gang. And so we worked. And so here I am, a 15, 16, 17 year old kid working Berkeley, uh, UC Berkeley college fraternity gigs. And so, oh, wow. you know, complete with beer kegs and, you know, and we, we and a, in a band I rehearsed five days a week called Prime Suspect. Right. And so yeah. I learned <laughs> learned all of those particular tunes. The guys couldn't read. I could read, but it didn't matter because they, they learned everything from records. Hmm. Right. So we had a repertoire. We had about 30 songs and we, we worked a lot. We had a manager and um, we had a horn section and it was, it was nice. And then, you know, I started getting into jazz because, uh, I started feeling really, uh, I like the swing beat. And so I was trying to introduce tunes like Valdez in the country, you know, to the, to the guys. Cause George Benson, I was really into George. And so mm-hmm. those guys would say, Oh man, that's jazz. We need to be playing a little bit more of this and that. So I kind of gravitated. And one time I came to a rehearsal and they said, 
man, you seem to be a little bit more in because they started rehearsing with another drummer. Okay, it's just simple. Uh-oh. And they said, you seem to be more into jazz and you're all what we're doing. And I said, well, you know, I kind of like it both, but I hear you. So they got somebody else. And that's when that was a turning point for me. And I, I started working jazz gigs. About Well, I had my first gig when I subbed for my dad on New Year's Eve. They got a call. He couldn't make it. One of the union cats, Billy Castellano, called and said, you know, uh, I need a drummer. Can you work? I said, no. My dad said he's working New Year's Eve, but my son plays. And they trusted my dad. And so I ended up doing my first jazz gig at age 17, right, under underage at a uh, elder at a elder, senior citizen's home hmm, no with, way. with a stride piano player, trumpet player and me. And she's showing me the rope. She said, OK, I'm going to play my left hand here, you know, T for two, blah, blah, blah. We're going to go to a cha-cha. Then we're going to go into this. and We're going into that. And I want you to trade a drum fill and all this kind of stuff. So I kind of learned that night. It's like, how, okay, I kept good time, but there's arrangements, right? There's these arrangements, the tunes I didn't know. So I had to really make sure that I started knowing them. And the only way that you're going to know them is dad said, you got to play them on the piano. I mean, you got to play the, at least a melody on the piano so you can learn them. So I started doing it. That's so important as a drummer, being able yeah. to play the melody or at least hear the melody. At least hear it. So I just started yeah. writing, you know, I just went down there. And played, yeah. Wow. Cool. Uh, any, anything you want to talk about uh, in terms of touring around the U.S. or internationally? Uh, what, what was that like playing? Did, did you get a, ch- a chance to play abroad a fair amount? Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah? So when I got to New York, that was the mecca of jazz and, and the actual industry itself. So yeah. if you can read you can work. So I ended up hooking up with some of the, the the baddest cats in town in terms of shows and the cats that made all the money. <laughs> Not a bad crowd to I work. <laughs> I could go to Queens and do a $50 gig and really have a lot of fun and sweat and, and the people would go shouting and screaming and buying you drinks and food. Or I could like work with cats that were doing cabaret and shows. So I ended up hooking up with Amos Behaven um, and touring with Amos Behaven for 10 years before I actually hooked up to the Pointer Sisters one. Whoa. So I actually did tours. I went everywhere. I went to Berlin. I went to Hamburg. I mean, yeah, I went to Berlin. I went to Germany, to France. I went to England. Uh, We toured with Amos Behaven. So with various companies, there was different companies that would go out. So if you can imagine this, there's publishing houses and there's management groups that actually take these big shows. They grab the scores. They grab the rehearsals. There's a budget. You rehearse, you get tight, and you start going on tour. And that's what we did with Ain't Misbehaving. So I did mm. that first. And then I hooked up with Jimmy Scott. And Jimmy mm. Scott, right after, right after I graduated, I got a call from Hill Green, and we hooked up with Jimmy Scott. And so I played with Jimmy for four and a half, almost five years before I moved to Seattle. Wow. And I went everywhere. What was it like seeing all these different cities as a musician? Did you get to spend much time in the different cities or was it just night after night, a new place? Well, with the Pointer Sisters, uh, Pointer Sisters, Amos behaving in 42 cities in 11 months. (laughs) That's quite a tour. Yeah. 10 weeks, two weeks at a time. Some of them one week somewhere else. Um, Traveling, in the country, in this country, is okay until you start really getting into the South. Hmm. And then things really do change in terms of mindset and what you have to be aware of. 
I'm from mm-hmm. Indianapolis, so I kind of know, you know, that it used to be the home of the Ku Klux Klan, including the mayor, the police department, everything you could think of. So there's a lot of bigotry and racism in Indiana. But having traveled with that group and Landsberg and Yon, which is another piano duo I hooked up before I actually left for New York in 82, I worked for Landsberg and Yon. We did the, um, the uh, what they call the symphonic pops circuit. Hmm. And so it's, it's Columbia Artist Management. They were Columbia artists. They were booked by Columbia Artists. And they were uh, protégés of Peter Nero. And oh, okay. So they ca- it was like Peter Nero times two. It was a piano duo. It was a f- marvelous. Everything was worked out. We rehearsed for, oh, I rehearsed with them every every other day for about five, about three months. So we got it all tight. We got it all. When when I when we played things like uh, it ain't necessarily so. I had a, some funky rhythms I was playing on the hi hat, and then I'd hit the, the 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 when they hit bing bing bing, I would have to hit the bell at the same time. So we had it all worked out, right? So we did some 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 Columbia artist management things, and the South was brutal. I, I went to Columbus, Mississippi, and experienced a town that was made a sla- by built by slaves. Um, that was interesting. That was interesting. I was. Um, kind of ignored the whole time by hmm. the people I was, you know, I was with a white group. So everything was kind of cool with that. But as far as going out on my own, it mm-hmm. was a problem. So um, I've toured a lot with different groups and that began like around 82 with Landsberg and Yon, and then going to New York, I hooked up with Amos Behaven, Jimmy Scott. We went all over, we went to Brazil, we went to Japan, we went to, we played in LA for so many different people. I don't know if you guys know about Jimmy. You guys know about Jimmy Scott? Loosely. I do not very much. So little Jimmy Scott was a legendary musician, a singer with Lionel Hampton's orchestra. Everybody, okay. somebody fool. That's a, that's a hit. You should check it out. He and Dinah Washington would, would trade off. There was to be the boy singer and the girl singer. Dinah was the mm-hmm. girl singer. Jimmy Scott was the boy singer and Lionel Hampton brought him on the road and they had a hit. They had a bunch of hits. And um, Jimmy got famous from it. And so he had a contract with Savoy Records when he broke away from Lionel and Solo. And he did really, really well. You check out a couple of records called The Source. It's one of the best on Broadway's hits, um, on Broadway version. You know, that you, say, you say the neon lights are bright on Broadway. That particular song, oh, yeah. he does it as a ballad. It's amazing. So he was kind of like the, the phrasing, the phrasing you hear with Nancy Wilson. Yeah, she copied everything he did. No but, way. But nobody heard of him for thirty-five years because Herb Lubensky said, "If you're ready to leave me, you will never leave me, because you will always be um, singing with me, or you won't be singing with anybody." So Jimmy made a decision for thirty-five years not to sing with anybody, and the comeback wow. tour was in nineteen ninety-one when I joined the band, and Herb Lubensky died. Hmm. And he was free. He was released of the contract. So Jimmy started coming back through Ruth Brown and uh, Bonnie Raitt. They literally got some grants and they got made a t- uh, made a, a big noise to the Rhythm and Blues Foundation. And we started working around. And Jimmy's comeback was amazing. I mean, we toured so many places. I played Alec Baldwin and Kim Basinger's wedding. Um, 
Whoa. Oh yeah, see, see, I'm telling you, man. Jimmy's Jim, if you when you go check out Jimmy, you'll go. Oh, I see why. Because mm. everybody loved him. I mean, his phrasing. There's nobody that phrases like this. And if you can get that concept, uh, Nancy did, and she came and saw us for the first time because she'd been listening to everything Jimmy did since he was 13 years old. Wow. <laughs> And literally, she saw him for the first time at the Center Grill with our group called Jimmy Scott and the Jazz Expressions. So, you know, that was that was kind of like the highlight for me. And so touring everywhere was really cool, except when you went places that were the the the, the system of racism and the bigotry is deep. Mississippi, right. Tennessee. I mean, with the Pointer Sisters, we found a bullet in the actual um, in the actual tour bus. Oh Somebody boy. shot at the tour bus. Yeah, he lodged in the tour bus while we we're while we we're at sound check. Wow, that's awful. Yeah, I mean, you know, you a lot of people don't really realize what musicians and well, you should now because you can kind of see right this this time that we're in is horrible, right? Right, right. And well, that's what it was like. But nobody said anything because there wasn't any cell phones, man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they have cell phones. Sure. You know, you couldn't go out and video people doing what they did because you could see it, but you'd be in the middle of people experienced it, but there was no way of, of recording it. Right. So yeah, the internet is bringing a lot of things to light. Oh man, unreal. So yeah, I, I enjoyed touring. I mean, I was you know I opened up for uh, Dizzy Gillespie and United Late Nations uh, Jazz Orchestra in Brazil. You know, with Jimmy Scott and and wow. and, and me and. Uh, Dizzy Gillespie were backstage listening to Giovanni do a a, a four call four man four conga solo for twenty minutes. Oh, that must have been amazing to hear. Oh man, and Dizzy like, you want to hit this? And I looked over and he had a smokeless pipe. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> oh man, this is Dizzy Gillespie, and he wants me to hit you know take a hit off his smokeless pipe. I'm like, uh. No, that's okay, Mr. Gillespie. I'm I'm good. He said, "You sure? <laughs> sure." He said, he said, "Yeah." So he did, and you know that that was kind of the thing. But you know, Jimmy got us all. Man, we were all over the world. Trust me, I did a couple of recordings with him. We did Twin Peaks. If you go Fire Walk with me, that's me on the soundtrack. Fire wow. Walk with me with, with these movies. Um, I'm on uh, the Money Train, the uh, Rage in Harlem with Jimmy. We did. Uh, there's uh, that that Mel, what's that Melrose Mel, Mulholland Drive. I'm the sound, mm-hmm. all kind of like funny sounds that come from like cymbals and I actually bowed. I showed uh, David Lynch that you could get this particular sound by bowing a cymbal. So he brought a bow in and I bowed a cymbal. And if you hear that, there's a lot of cymbal no way cymbal rolls and stuff that yeah, you yeah yeah yeah. That's me. Huh. Oh, wow. They just said, you know, Angelo said, okay, give me a cymbal roll. I was like, okay. So I just rolled on the cymbals with mallets, you know, not sticks, with mallets. Mm-hmm. And so literally they put them in the films. Man, that's so cool. Yeah. Legendary. Even. So you lived in Indianapolis, San Francisco, New York. You toured all over the world, but you're in Seattle. When did you move to Seattle and uh, what brought you here? So we moved to Seattle. Myself, I moved to Seattle in 1996. Off the road with the Pointer Sisters, 42 cities in 11 months. I never saw my family. Wow. So what I did, mm. I sent a sub. Frank Derrick, who played Ains Misbehaving on Broadway for many years, because I got to know a lot of those cats. I studied with 
with with Grady Tate. I didn't really study with Grady Tate. I subbed for Grady Tate because he wouldn't let me study with him. He said, man, you don't need a sub for me. Just, I mean, you don't need to study with me. Just sub for me. I was like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> so I subbed for Grady Tate on Broadway. And then um, literally um, um, I got the show. And, you know, I did a bunch of shows on Broadway. I mean, I just made a great living feeding the family. And then, <clears throat> after, you know, and then in between, I went to go out with Lou Donaldson and do stuff that I could do. Um, it's not a bad gig either. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I got some stories about Lou. I mean, it's we don't have a lot of time. But, um, so then what happened was uh, 42 cents in 11 months, I kind of made a decision because my kids didn't know. I know. Oh, I know what happened. I was in Atlanta. We were doing two weeks in Atlanta at the Fox Theater. And my, my daughter, I think she was three at the time, maybe. She might have been three or four. She just said, got on the phone. Because I was always calling every night as much as I could. And she mm-hmm. said, she said, uh, Daddy, I'm never gonna see you again, huh? And that man, that, that got me. Wow. I was like, man, I'm sitting here, I am sitting in Atlanta, and I had said, no, 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 Adrian, I'll be, I'll be back. So what happened from that day on? I had my, I started forming my resume, resume, and I started sending it to every the college. I went to the, uh, what do you call it, the Missoula, Montana site, uh, College Music Society. Mm-hmm. You're literally. Where you find jobs and college positions because I had a master's degree, right? So I started farming out my resume and sending it out to everybody, everybody I could. And I sent it to my cousin um, in Seattle, and I got help from Andrea Wilson, who lived in Seattle, who was really pr- helping me promote it. And I had a cousin here, and um, she said, I know somebody is going to want to start a jazz department in Seattle Central. That was in 1994. End of 95, beginning of 96. And she said, I know somebody who wants to start a jazz department. And so I was in Denver and with the, with the sisters. And and um, I called the, the, the Rosanna Hunter, sweetheart. And she was the dean of the department, uh, dean of the Humanities Social Science Division. She said, I saw your resume. I know what you've been, what you're about. I got a job for you. And I was like, a job for me? I already got a job. What are you talking about? I'm playing with the pointer scissors on the road. She said, it'll start part-time if you want it, but it'll be benefits. You'll be a full-time professor. I can probably get you a full-time professorship after the 10-year review process in two years. Or no, in nine in nine months. Three quarters. Whoa. So that was a big decision. So I'm sitting in the hotel room in Denver with Stanton Davis who used to teach at Wesley? He was an assistant at Wesleyan University, and he's a trumpet player. We roomed together, and uh, you know we were rooming with the Pointer Sisters. And I said, "Man, I got this job offer." This lady says she can give me a job. Um, you know what should I do? He said, "Oh man, you got to take that." He said, Ch- "College jobs don't come around often, especially with benefits and and retirement and all that." Oh, you got to take that, man. And I was like, "Well, wait, wait a second. If I leave New York, it's over." He said, "You got to take that." I mean, you can always come back to New York and play, but you need, you got to do that. So anyway, I just, I pursued it and, you know, I talked to my wife. We sat outside one of my dad's oldest friend's house because he, I had no place to live. So he said, yeah, you can live with me. And, you know, he, he started a photography department. At, his name was Sherman Wilcox. You, and you can, you can, you know, start the, the program, you know, these good people here, you'll have a, you'll have a lot of opportunity, a lot of, you know, support. And you can live with me until you get a place to live. So I, I, you know, we, I, I packed up from Nyack, New York, and 
had my wife start making plans to sell, rent the house because we own the house in Nyack. You know, we were making some money. So I bought a house in Nyack and, and um, you know, the rest is history. I mean, we, we, we made that decision. Here, Very cool. Here I am. Uh, when you got here, how did you start kind of meeting people and, and getting involved with the scene? Uh, I started going out. So Ruel was one of the first cats I saw. Actually, oh, yeah. Tim, Tim uh, Turner was playing drums with him. And there was a whole scene at, uh, not to, was it Sorrento? No, what's the name of that place on six? It used, I forgot the name of the hotel. Yeah, it's a Sorrento. It, it was uh, it was down Sixth Avenue. I'm thinking about it. wasn't a Sorrento. It was another place that they were actually trying to do a resurgence of Lafernos, right? But it oh. wasn't the original Lafernos. It was like another place. And Brian Nova was there, so I met all these cats there. I sat in, and then with what I did was try to start a big band, right? So. Mm. I had a whole bunch of, you know, I worked with John Fedchak a lot at NYU because I was in the NYU big band with, uh, oh, I didn't tell you about that. Lou Soloff on lead. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Valerie Parmar. I mean, I played with all these cats at NYU. They were in the big band. They were like ringers that Tom Boris brought in for the big band. Big band was killing, right? Sounds like it. Yeah, we had, well, we had Lee, Lee, Lou Soloff playing lead. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and all these cats, and so John Fetchak was playing lead trombone. So I think he was a lead, or he was playing a solo chair, and we did a lot of his charts. So I called John, and I bought charts from him, right? And I said, "Hey, man, I want to start a big band here." So I put the word out to Dennis Haldane, and a lot of cats came through. Mike West came through. Um, uh, Doug, uh, Doug Oswald, uh, what's his name? Um, Doug um, Oscar. Uh, Doug Oscar. He came through and a bunch of cats came through to read these New York charts. Cause I told him, Hey man, I got some cats, you know, I got some great music. It's nothing like you. It's not like the jazz police. You got, I got some stuff that's from New York it's from fed shock and some different stuff. Although the police is really cool. They got some good music, but anyway, they came, we played, we started, you know, making our name. We did some gigs and it was fun. And then, you know, cats started drifting off cause the parking was bad and you had to pay. You know, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> now we all know which direction that's gone. Yeah, and you had to pay. So essentially that kind of fell by the wayside, and I gave it to Lonnie Martis, who really built it up and kept it going for 20 years after that. It was great. What was that being called? Seattle Central Jazz Orchestra. Oh, okay. Okay, cool. Yeah, so that, that, that really helped me bring in that whole kind of New York cred and those charts and just – you know, I just kind of brought the energy, I thought, when I came here because I could really play fast. I mean, I haven't, haven't played with Lou Donaldson. I could play really fast, you know. Mm. So that was the whole thing here in New York. Definitely. In New York, you can't play fast and you're in trouble. because New York tempos. Yeah, yeah. They don't, that, that businessman bounce that we play here, they can't stand that. Because <laughs> they move too fast. I mean, it's a fast-moving world, right? So, yep. yeah. So that's how so, it started. Here. That's awesome. Uh, we do have a couple things that you played on that that we're gonna play uh, for those of you listening. Um, see how much time we have for that, Josh. What do you, you want to take care of that? Sure. Yeah. Uh, you sent over some stuff that you did with uh, New Trio with Nathan Breedlove and the New Trio, the New Trio, and Phil Sparks on bass. Yeah. Yep. Cool. Well, let's, uh, how about we take a listen to, I forget if it's like the third or fourth track, but Rob, why don't we give that yeah. a spin? Okay. Yeah. That's written by uh, Nathan Breedlove because it's Nathan Breedlove, Phil Sparks and I. 
And the concept is that free, wide open trio, cordless trio. And and Rob is one of the uh, – this is for Robin, his wife. Cool. Oh, cool.
Wow, that was a wonderful tune, Brian. I really like this. Uh, the, this cordless concept is uh, cool, and uh, I'm just Phil Sparks' bass is so wide and fat and fills up so much space um, that a chord player would or, ordinarily. It, it's just, it's not, I, I hate to say this as a chords player, but it's really not missed at all. No. Yeah, it's kind of interesting concept of how how we went about it because we were we rehearsed, you know, like anything else. But uh, Nathan really tried to just to expand our sounds and try to really get us bigger in terms of really, you know, <clears throat> of filling up the space, but sure. not but leaving space. And that's that was the idea of this cordless thing. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. I mean, his work with with um, with uh, what's his name? Um, I'm trying Lester Bowie and. Um, um, the other guy that just passed away. I'm just trying to think of his name. Lost it. Uh, that whole art ensemble of Chicago, but the whole Lester Bowie thing was really an influence on him as well. Mm. And you so, don't get to really hear a trumpet trio very often. Cordless trumpet trio. Right. You know, right. maybe, you know, saxophone, maybe, maybe, but. But not with trumpet. Yeah, that's pretty rare. That's pretty that's, unique. And I, when yeah. he approached me with that, I was like, are you serious, man? Are you serious? <laughs> And he's like, yeah, I'm, you know, because he plays piano, but he didn't really want to be, you know, he didn't want to have the, inf- the 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 chord kind of messing up what he his sound and and his concept, you know. Mm. He's got that whole uh, uh, Booker, um, what's his name, Booker Little? Is it Booker, Booker Little? Booker Little, yeah. Yeah, he loves the Booker Little kind of phrasing and concept and it's wide, kind of wide open sound, and you know, and, and searching for ideas that are not typically trumpet licks, you know, trumpet stuff, so. Mm-hmm. Searching. This is a kind of a funny thing to say, but I love the conviction with which you play the crash cymbal and the bass drum together. Well, thank you. Yeah, it, it adds. I don't know. It adds some. Uh, it's like a sense of confidence, almost, or something. It's cool. Yeah, and you know, I study in New York and study with 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 Michael Carvin and all those New York cats. Man, they really and you know, and listening to Roy Haynes, all those cats, they really play that bass and cymbal crash together with conviction. It's just yep. like, it's like a real big thing, you know? I just put a picture of Roy Haynes up on the wall, actually. <laughs> Roy Haynes. Cool. <laughs> Roy <laughs> Haynes. Yeah, that's a that's a great record. Oh, yeah. That crackle pop. So I, I'm cool. thinking that I'm playing La Famille, and, uh, you know, there's the organ rooms in Harlem, right? I was in New York, so I played with uh, – play with uh, uh, Donald King Smith, who was Lonnie Liston Smith's brother, and then Preacher Robbins, and then there was um, uh, McDuff would come up a lot, right? Because I played with mm-hmm. McDuff for, uh, for about three three weeks, and then um, McDuff would come up a lot. But I was playing with, I think it was Donald King Smith, and we were playing the first set, and I go upstairs, because uh, it's two levels, one music room, and then the restaurant's upstairs, and right, and it's called Southern Cooking, called La Famille. And upstairs is Roy Haynes, sitting there eating a fried chicken dinner, right? Collard greens, fried chicken, sweet potatoes. I was like, oh, man, Roy Hayes just heard me play home. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> and he was just like greasy. He's like, yeah, man, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, he's greasing on his food. You know, I'm like, oh, man. I hope it was cool, you know. Oh, man. Yeah, it was you talk to him at all? A little bit. He was eating his food, man. Right, right. I don't want to disturb cats in New York when they're greasing. Yeah, it's like okay, there it is. I'll let you go. Have you checked out his nephew, uh, Marcus? Yes, Marcus Gilmore. Yeah, 
Man, he's a he's one of my favorite drummers too. Yeah, he can really play. I was getting a a new cell phone when I was in Boston at the Verizon store, and this is back when you had to. Uh, it took a long time to transfer all your contacts over and stuff. And um, I was talking to the guy there, and we started talking about music and, and drumming and stuff. And he's like, "Oh man, that's cool. You play drums. Maybe you know my. Maybe you know like some members of my family." I was like, oh, "Okay, yeah, sure. You know, everybody everybody plays music. Everybody has a drummer in the family. You know." Right, right. And he's like, "Yeah, you know my. Uh, I think it was my his, his, his uncle or something. Right. His name is Roy Roy Haynes." <laughs> I was like, "Oh, oh, wait a minute." <laughs> And he's like, yeah, maybe you know my brother, uh, Marcus. <laughs> it's like, oh, small yeah. world. If you don't, you should, in other words. Huh? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, those, yeah, definitely people you should know. But no doubt. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. It's very cool. Well, I loved hearing you play drums, Brian. That was a beautiful track. Uh, I just learned yesterday that you played Vibes. I didn't know that you played, and you sent this wonderful track that we'd love to also uh, put in this episode. Would you mind? Oh. No, I, sure. I'd love to. All right. And, uh, you know, the idea that vi- my dad played piano and vibes. So uh, there was always vibes, timpani, piano. Uh, and I have to admit, it vi- eventually it was 14 sets of drums. Oh. 14 sets of drums? My dad was a collector of drum sets. I got Gretsch drums. I got Rogers. I've got Ludwig. I've got all the stuff that he let me left me, including the Garcia drums that he loved so much. But he had 14 snare drums. No way. Oh, my word. Yeah, so I got all these drums in my basement. I really got to start organizing them and getting them together. But um, all the instruments were around, so I had a smorgasbord of things I could choose from. So I went from timpani to vibes to drum set to piano. And so uh, to get into Indiana University, I wanted to be a percussion major, so I started practicing mallets when I was – 17, 18, right? When I left mm. high school to get into IU and I started working on classical tunes because I love classical music. So I started working on Robert Schumann's couple of etudes that Robert Schumann wrote that were transcribed from vibraphone. Mm. Uh, I eventually got in, but not as a music major because I didn't have the kind of skills that the, all those mallet players had in IU. I was kind of a general, uh, general, uh, I was a general ed major. I wasn't a music major, but I pursued the vibes and I came back to California and I really started working on mallets. So I've been playing vibes again since the quarantine, just cause I, cool. but I always played it with the school. I always played it with students. Um, I just didn't play out. Cause first of all, I didn't want to carry them out and set them up all the time, you know? So <laughs> anyway, the track you're listening to is uh, something I've been working on. Uh, my favorite vibraphone players are Bobby Hutcherson and Gary Burton. So, I, I love four mallets, and so I, this is the tune called "My Foolish Heart," inspired by Bobby Hutcherson because I was fortunate to play with Bobby and have and listen to him play it um, when I was playing drums in San Francisco behind him. So that's cool. Let's wow. give this let's give this track a spin. Thank you. 
Wow, really nice playing, Brian. Um, I knew you were a percussionist, but I didn't. I've never actually heard you play anything other than drums. Right, right. So right. it's quite a treat. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, it's a. It's you know, um, I always wanted to play the melody, and so every time, any chance I do, um, I'm thinking about more. So now, actually, starting to really get it. I mean, I've been memorizing tunes and getting all the repertoire together. So I'm thinking about really coming out and playing some vibes after this quarantine, yeah. uh, you know, release. So thank you. Yeah, that'd be, maybe we should do a gig. That'd be fun. That would be fun. That would be, I mean, you'd definitely be my first choice is playing drummers. So oh man, that would be fabulous, man. That's a compliment coming from you. Thank you, sir. Appreciate um, it. We're, we're a little short on time. So I want to talk about a couple, couple more things really fast. Sure. Um, it kind of goes without saying at this point in time that we are living in wild times. <laughs> and there are a lot of uh, a lot of things being discussed, a lot of things coming to light between you know COVID nineteen and the the current Black Lives Matter movement and other things. Um, how is this affecting your music and or your teaching? Um. Well, there's no there's no face to face classes. Everything's online. Yeah. So Health Central and. And all the colleges have gone online. So we, I teach music fundamentals, I teach music theory, and I teach audio music production online. So I've got a course and a curriculum that I started 12 years ago in the music production. Uh, my, my music appreciation is online. I've been teaching that for about six years online. And so oh, wow. essentially I've got that kind of dialed in. I've got all the, I mean, I, just, I spent a lot of time at night and early in the morning, getting all the assignments together for the very next week. I always stay one, one module or one week ahead of uh, students, but I have, um, it's, it's affected in that there's the mode of delivery for education is online one, right? And yeah. that's really not going to change for, a, for a lot of people. It's going to be one of those convenient things where they can work and go to school and get a degree and not have to go into a physical building. Yeah, that's cool that you've been doing that for a little while, it sounds like. Yes, I have. I've been teaching yeah. for a little while. So I've kind of get, getting that dialed in. And then musically, um, like I said, the, 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 my release has been the – I was going to do some writing on, on the, my, my memoirs and all my experiences I've done. But literally, I started playing vibes, and my wife said, you know, I really like to hear you play the vibes again. So – I just brought them home and I started practicing them. And that's kind of like where my focus is. It's like every, after I grade all the papers and read all the essays and just kind of chill out at, at home, I go down and play tunes. I go down and play vibes and I am I'm going through the fake book. Cause I can, I can read, I can read really well. So um, I'm just going through tunes and going, man, I'll whisper not do <laughs> so many, I, you know, just so many tunes, man. Like it's, they're running all in my head and then it's trying to just play them and, and really um, capture that moment. I've been listening a lot to Gary Burton and uh, Chick Corea. So I kind of get inspired mm. by the, 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 the fact that I'm at home and I literally can play the vibraphone and really enjoy music again. Cause it was awesome. tough. It was kind of tough getting my jazz program pulled away from me at Seattle Central College. You know, yeah, that sounds not fun. Well, you know, I had to reinvent the whole thing, uh, my whole approach. I had to take everything online. I had to really get into audio production. As I said, I'm, I know basic functions of Pro Tools, and I could do a session now. I could set it up and do a gig, but record some folks. 
But as a matter of fact, that that record you did that you played with um, the new trio that was recorded at Seattle Central Studio. In mm. oh, cool. Did yeah. you engineer that record? No, that was Lonnie Martis, who was my team, and and who actually started the MIDI program at our school. Cool. Um, but yeah, I mean that's kind of where it is, man. And and this world today, I mean it's it's gone backwards. It's it's gone into a very time where my mom says this is the way it was in the early, late '50s, early '60s. Where all the racism, where all the lynchings, where all the police violence, where all the hatred was was flowing, and it, it's it's uh, it's heartbreaking to tell you the truth. So music for me now is really therapeutic. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That's cool that you have a melodic outlet too. Yes, thank you. Um, what other records can we check out if we want to hear you play? I mean, if you have maybe just a couple that you might recommend if people want to just check out. Uh, I'm, on a, I'm on the Point of Sisters Ain't Misbehaving record. I mean, that's a broad okay. recording. So that one, Ain't Misbehaving, there's a lot of stuff on that. I'm also on the Broadway recording Five Guys Named Mo, which is a Broadway show that I had. And we recorded in, uh, in basically eight and uh, six and a half hours with no, with, with each, each tune on there is basically one take. The singer, wow. the, boy, the point, yeah, we were really tight. I mean, you know, you're doing six shows a week. Uh, eight Fair shows, enough. six days a week, you know, eight shows a day, a week. Sorry. And um, yeah, after, for a year, you get really tight. So Tommy LaPlumer brought us into Sony Records, said, do your thing, and we did. So I'm on that one. Um, let's see. And then you have the new trio. Um, and then I didn't do any recordings with Lou, but I did a record with Jimmy Scott called oh, cool. uh, uh, Does It Love Me More? Jimmy Scott and the Jazz Expressions, his very first record that came out before, uh, in 1990, I think, yeah, 91, when we did that record. Um, but the most recent thing is, like I said, with the with the new trio, and I'm pretty proud of that. It's wonderful yeah, it playing. Great. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, yeah well, you, play, you play another cut from that, maybe uh, Calvary or Christine. I wrote the ballad called Christine. Oh, well, cool. Yeah. Maybe we should play a little bit of Christine. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Let's, why don't we close with that? Um, yeah, play, play us out. Yeah. Thank you so much, Brian, for hanging out with us and uh, telling us these wonderful stories and sharing your music. It's, it's been, uh, this has been really wonderful. Oh, thank you. Yeah. And, and thank you, Max. It's, it's a play. It's my pleasure. Really? Yeah. No, this is cool. Thanks for doing this. Yes, sir. So for all of you listeners, you've been listening to Jazz Talk Seattle. This is Brian uh, Brian Kirk on drums, about to play uh, with the new trio, Christine. And that's NU, by the way. That's right, NU trio. <laughs> Short for Nubian. <laughs> <laughs>